Welcome to Strictly JoJo, a podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, where every JoJo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. This is episode six, and we're reviewing part one, Phantom Blood, Tomorrow's Courage. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened previously in JoJo, so you've been warned. With episode six of Phantom Blood, things are picking up. Last episode of Strictly JoJo, we talked about how episode five of Phantom Blood was probably um, my least favorite JoJo episode, and I think your least favorite as well, or one of your your least favorite, right? I would say last episode and this one are probably my least favorites, besides it being a very confusing translated title because i know there's tomorrow's courage and then there's an alternate translation plucked for tomorrow i would say that's probably the more one of the more interesting things about this episode if you could even consider that an interesting thing in the episode um i'll say this one is just a step above the previous episode it's a little more enthralling but i just think it's very oddly paced and edited and feels more like just another setup for the next episode. It is kind of a filler episode. I think the only substantial thing that we get from this episode is more of Zapelli's backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think there's anything else that it really offers to us. It just, as you said, it kind of sets you up for the next episode, which I agree. This episode six is a step up. It's, it's heading the right direction. Like I said, last podcast episode, since we kind of hit the bottom rung of JoJo episodes, things are only going to get better from here. And so this is heading in the right direction, but it's like still a half step away from us being back on like true JoJo level of episodes, which not to spoil anything for the next one, but next episode is it'll bring us back to that true JoJo feel, that true JoJo episode. Yeah. And the only other thing I can say about this episode is it substantially delves a lot deeper into some of these themes we've been seeing throughout these episodes of part one. Um, And I'll, get into that a little after our uh, synopsis but again nothing to really write home about uh, with this episode last thing i'll say about it before we go into the synopsis is that um you're absolutely right this this dives into some themes a little bit deeper than we've seen before but for only having nine episodes to go through part one but part one being such a a pivotal part of the story i mean it is like the foundation of jojo um, i'm surprised they chose you know, last episode, episode five and episode six to, to focus on Bruford and Tarkus. Maybe they played a big part in the manga. I'm not sure because I've never read it. But I just think if you're limited to nine episodes, you would take more time to focus on other things like Dio or the mask or something that's more substantial to the story. Mm-hmm. But with that said, let's jump into that synopsis so we can dive a little bit more into episode six and the things that we loved and maybe not so much loved. All right, so here we go for part one, episode six, Tomorrow's Courage. Bruford barely escapes Jonathan's underwater wrath and ensnares our Hamon hero within his luscious hair once more. But with some quick thinking, Jonathan uses metal silver overdrive to melt off Bruford's arm and pummels him with a barrage of Hamon-infused punches, but ultimately shows his opponent some mad respect as he succumbs to his wounds. It seems Bruford has reached his redemption arc as he regains his human soul and bequeaths Jonathan with his sword, renamed from Luck to Pluck, before getting Thanos dusted. Tarkus, however, reminds everyone that he's still here to fuck around, so Jonathan and Zeppeli Duda fly everyone to safety using a Hamon hang glider made out of leaves. Because why the fuck not? As in-flight entertainment, we are treated to more of Zeppeli Duda's backstory, showing his journey to learning about the art of Hamon 
and having his fate sealed by Hamon master Ton Petty. Tarkus, still in hot pursuit, forces them to land at an old knight's training ground on the side of a cliff, where Jonathan separates from the group and is lured into a trap within the grounds. Tarkus then challenges him to a chain death match where one opponent must decapitate the other in order to be set free. Jonathan struggles against Tarkus because the collar restricts his Hamon breathing, but Zeppeli Duda and Speedwife who have no means of reaching the young lad. So Poco Loco, after peeing his pants and contemplating whether or not to chicken out like a bitch, decides to man the fuck up and save Jonathan by crawling through a small opening into the lair and opening the entrance from the inside. Tarkus knocks some more Loco into Poco as he opens the door for Speedwaifu and Zeppeli Duda. The former tends to the boy's wounds as the latter, remembering Master Tonpetti's prophecy, takes Jonathan's place in the death match and prepares to meet his doom at the hands of Tarkus. And of course, to the epic tune of Yes's Roundabout. And now on to our next segment of the show is that a music reference where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. There's only one of significance in this episode, and that is Master Ton Petty, who is named after Tom Petty, the American singer and leader of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. For those of you who are not familiar with Tom Petty, he sang the song Free Falling. You've probably heard it on those classic rock radios. Or for you Grand Theft Auto San Andreas fans, he also performed the song Running Down a Dream. Next, it's the JoJo meme rundown where we list each new JoJo meme that appeared in this episode. Really, the only one that comes to mind is um, the one that Zapelli says, which is nice catch, which she says as nice catchy. And I think I think that's the only the only meme from this one. I could be wrong. As always, if we forgot any, please feel free to let us know. But we will count this one as one meme for episode six. And I don't know if you consider the fucking leaf glider a meme, but <laughs> I mean, that was just a really weird part of the episode. It kind of is a meme in its own right. Um, but what I've seen in in uh, the JoJo community, nice catchy, it makes its way from time to time. It's not one of the biggest JoJo memes that we have out there, but it does exist. Mm-hmm. All right, so episode six. The first note I have in here, which is super insignificant, but just really funny to me, is that two episodes ago in jojo we had a moment where zapelli was walking on water and speedwagon was freaking out and then jonathan was right behind him trying to do it and he was not as skilled so his kind of you know toes were dipping in the water but he was able to manage across the the way to get to poco who stole their bag blah 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 blah. i think that was last episode oh was it (laughs) yeah it probably was i don't know um but then we get a quick shot here after jonathan and bruford are fighting underwater where bruford comes up out of the water onto the land but jonathan is still standing standing in the middle of the lake that was supposed to be super deep. What I found confusing is that there were no Hamon ripples around his feet. So granted, he could have been using Hamon and just kind of floating there, but I thought they'd make it a little more obvious by having those ripples. David forgot. That's, <laughs> that's all I can say. But yeah, it's weird that the, the water is suddenly not so shallow. But anyway, that's minor. I just wanted to call that out there. What I really wanted to start off with um, is the use of Hamon in this episode. We get like a ton of new moves. Um, some sort of like turquoise overdrive and then metal silver yeah. overdrive. There's like a lot of new moves thrown out there that we have not seen before. I kept a running list. Um, turquoise blue overdrive, I think that was a carryover from the finale of last episode. 
Um, Jonathan mentions Hamon of the Sun, Overdrive Barrage, Metal Silver Overdrive, which he uses to melt off Bruford's arm, Sunlight Yellow Overdrive, which I believe we've heard before, um, but it's what he calls out when he uses like multiple punches against Bruford, which I want to make a note here. It makes Jonathan eerily resemble a character that we'll see in a future part. I'm not going to spoil it yet, but I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind when we do get to that part. That is important to note. For anyone mm-hmm. who hasn't watched JoJo yet and they're, they're watching it alongside this podcast, perhaps, just keep in mind Jonathan's barrage of punches for when we get to, as Carl mentioned, a future episode. We'll bring that back up, I'm sure. Yeah, because I know there were a lot of floating theories out there about this particular move being seen again. Um, but yeah, we'll save that for the future. Uh, the last uh, piece of Hamon combat was Life Magnetism Overdrive, which again was to create that weird fucking hang glider out of leaves. And the narrator provides like a scientific um, background to how it works, but I don't know how practical that is. And on the theme of Hamon moves or Hamon capabilities... There's one point where I think Zapelli um, comments that because Jonathan's arms are tied up, he cannot use Hamon because Hamon can only be used through the extremities. Did we establish that earlier? Did I just miss that? I feel like that was, maybe it's been a thing, but it wasn't explicitly stated up until this point because I was a little bit surprised by it when he said that. Yeah, I don't recall that ever being mentioned before. Well, it's a new thing, along with several of these moves. So there you go. They've now established that Hamon can only be used through the extremities. We've learned something today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that same scene, Jonathan again uses that that combo punch, that barrage of punches on Bruford, um, and shoots the Hamon up, up the middle of his sword and then just sends Hamon straight through Bruford's body. And at that moment, Jonathan could sense a change in Bruford after that final Hamon strike. And that leads into Bruford kind of regaining his sense of human pain, as Zapelli is kind of explaining what's happening, that the Hamon is disintegrating Bruford's zombie body, but through that, he's regaining his human soul. And I found this to be very interesting because it reminds us that Bruford and Tarkus were good, honorable warriors at, at you know an earlier point. We got that backstory on them in a previous episode, but this kind of, I think, really drives that home that before Dio possessed their corpses, they were good people. They were honorable people. So I think what, um, what I'm kind of getting at here is that Jonathan recognizes that these two guys are not innately evil, but they're just following Dio's will. They, they don't really have a choice but to be evil because in, the, in that moment they are zombies. They've been possessed by Dio and they've been commanded to destroy Jonathan. And after Jonathan um, you know, has his quick chat with Bruford and then Bruford poofs away, Jonathan's not upset at Bruford. He's not upset at Tarkus. He, he immediately says, you know, this is all the mask doing and this is Dio's fault for using the mask to make this happen. So that just shows that Jonathan is always, he's always you know, good on the inside, even if he's been attacked by somebody, he he doesn't forget who they really are, the honor that they have, and who the, his true enemy is. And that's what I was kind of referring to at the beginning of this episode, um, that this episode, or this episode of JoJo um, really dives into, I would say, two themes, the first of which, as you were mentioning, is honor. I don't know if you mentioned this, but like Bruford, at the beginning of his second bout with Jonathan acknowledges that 
Jonathan has this heart and soul of a hero. And in turn, Jonathan kind of notes that Bruford has similar pride, but it's twisted into a passion for blood because he has been corrupted, you know, by, by Dio's control or by Dio's possession. So when Jonathan, like he genuflects to Bruford as he, as Bruford's about to launch his final sword attack. Um, and that kind of catches him by surprise, but it's just a reminder that, you know, Jonathan is still a very honorable and noble person. And he can kind of see these qualities in people, even if they can be like the most vile. Um, an example is we saw that with Speedwagon, right? Um, initially Speedwagon was Jonathan's enemy, but Jonathan showed him enough respect that it kind of turned Speedwagon, Speedwagon away from his, his evil ways. And now he's accompanying him um, on, on this journey. And you see that again here with Bruford, like Bruford didn't expect Jonathan to, to show him such compassion and have this heart to heart with him. And you can see like Jonathan's compassion through the Hamon destroying that, that malicious part of him that Dio tried to corrupt him with and to bring him back into his true form, as you mentioned, um, prior to them being possessed by Dio. And to your earlier point, I mean, you, you bring up a, a really good point that even with Dio, when he first, when Jonathan first meets Dio, he tries to see the good in him. He, he doesn't immediately, I mean, even though Dio kicks his dog like right away, Jonathan still tries to see the good in him. He still gives him the benefit of the doubt, um, very quickly learns his lesson about Dio. But to that same theme, Jonathan is always trying to see the good in people. Um, and to your second point, I did note that Jonathan said I had to kill him to save his soul when he's talking about Bruford. And I think it really kind of tears at Jonathan a bit that his goal is to save people. He wants to do good by people. But in this case, the only way to save Bruford, to bring him justice, was to kill him, which I think mm -hmm. I think that, that doesn't sit easy with Jonathan. But even in his, like, his final moments, Bruford still uh, validates Jonathan by calling him a man of excellence and true compassion. So it's not like he he regrets having been killed by Jonathan, right? It's more that Jonathan restored him back to his, his humanity. Yeah. And poor dude had to die twice. Like that, that's pretty bad. <laughs> he had yeah. to be betrayed and beheaded the first time, but at least the second time he got a more honorable and respectful or respected, what? Respectful? Respectful. <laughs> respectful. Sorry. Respectful death. Um, Actually one more thing before we move on. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about the sword that Bruford gifts to Jonathan. Um, although I thought he destroyed or melted his sword, right? Or Jonathan melted Bruford's sword? I don't think he melted. I think he just sent Hamon through it. Oh, okay. So I didn't know if he just had this other sword that he was carrying. Um, but I remember watching this the first time. Bruford talks about how his sword is named Luck, and then he adds that P to make it Pluck. I thought that was more of like a weird comic relief moment. But I kind of did a little bit more research, um, and it turns out like these words for luck and pluck are like commonly used in these old novels and stories from the late 1800s when, when this part takes place. And I think what it highlights is like the difference between people who effortlessly obtain what they want through good fortune or illegitimate means or luck and the people who have to kind of make their way in life through hard efforts, which is pluck. So there's significance there in why Bruford renamed the sword to pluck because he sees that, you know, Jonathan is making an effort to 
um, like rid the world of this evil that's been incarnated through Dio um, rather than just, again, relying on his own fortune to, to do whatever he wants. That's interesting. I didn't know that because I'd always kind of questioned too what the whole luck and pluck theme really meant. And I think that maybe provides more clarity into why Tarkus um, says that Bruford's a coward. He's always been a trickster. Like I, I respected him, but he's always been a trickster. And I'm like, when when was he a trickster? Like when did we get anything in his backstory that indicated that? But maybe that ties his story into the fact that he received a sword named Luck because maybe the way he got to where he was during that time was unexpected or maybe less honorable or who knows. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that part with Tarkus, after Bruford disappears, Tarkus comes over and stomps on his armor and Jonathan is offended by that saying, you know, this was your one of your closest allies. He was an honorable person. Why would you do that? And then again, Tarkus says that, you know, I respected him, but he was a coward, a trickster. I'm here for basically for the fight. Like he, he's a strong person who wants to fight. Um, and so in that moment, it, it sets Tarkus up in this very evil light, um, shows him as being evil at heart. But can it be argued that similar to Bruford, Tarkus is still possessed by Dio and doesn't have his human soul at play, so he's still in this state of evil? Like, couldn't we say that Tarkus, if he had the same opportunity to be blown to bits by Hamon, would then have his human soul restored and then he would be a good person as well? Because if he fought alongside mm. Bruford for that long and Bruford was such an honorable person and gravitated toward honor, um, and he protected Queen Mary. is Queen Mary, right? Yeah. So I, I would think that Tarkus is on that same level as Bruford. So I don't know. I, I we, would, we don't know in this episode kind of what um, Tarkus is really like, but that's what I would imagine is, is if he were also to have his human soul restored, that maybe he wouldn't be as evil as he's behaving in that moment. I don't know. I think of the pair of them, the show wants to frame Bruford as the more likely to be restored to honor. And here it just seems like Tarkus is so beyond saving um, that you kind of question if he can be brought back in the same way. Because um, you like, again, with this first battle, you can see Jonathan recognize the good in Bruford. You don't really see that here initially because Tarkus destroyed the only semblance of his his former partner's existence by destroying the armor. So that's that first act probably turned Jonathan away from like, okay, this guy's not worth saving. But I don't know. I don't really remember what happens to Tarkus after this point. So... Yeah, and I'm just thinking about it in a broader sense, the the idea of, you know, these zombies. I mean, other than certain zombies like Jack the Ripper that we saw earlier who were innately bad, could some of these zombies um, really be good at heart? Because we do see Dio, I think, on like an occasion or two, just take a random person and, and like suck their blood. And I would imagine they turn into a zombie at that point or another vampire. So I'm like, were those people also good people at one point that are, you know, corrupted to do Dio's will and therefore are now evil, but really they weren't in mm-hmm. the beginning. It just kind of makes me think about that in like the broader sense and think like, oh, that's really sad. And I'm sure Jonathan wants to save all of them, which is why he's so determined to stop Dio. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, um, we get the magnetism powers we talked about earlier and they make a giant leaf-shaped glider out of leaves and they're hanging on by magnetic energy, and then Poco and Speedwagon jump on board, and they fly away. And Poco, who just in general in this episode is so hot and cold, is very hot in this moment where he like 
pulls down his pants and, and mm. moons Tarkus and slaps his ass. And I'm like, okay, Poco, you're, you're a little cheeky kid, huh? I also like how Speedwagon like grips onto Zeppeli. Um, like he hangs on to him for dear life. <laughs> like a big bear hug. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in this part that we get more of Zeppeli's backstory where we learn how he came across Hamon for the first time. And in this flashback with Tom Petty, he's told that he's fated for death. And yet, even in that moment, he still doesn't waver in his quest to destroy the mask. He immediately says, like, I understand that this is my fate, but I am I need to learn this, this skill. I need to learn Hamon because I need to fulfill my destiny and destroy this mask. And that's where the second theme that's discussed in his episode is presented, um, this idea of fate. Um, you get it here with Zeppeli's backstory. Again, not letting someone's fate or destiny change what they want to do for the world which is again in this case with Zeppeli and with Jonathan destroying Dio and destroying the mask um, and I don't think we mentioned this already but jo- or Jonathan earlier in the episode says what a bizarre fate <laughs> kind of referencing the bizarre in Bizarre Adventure yeah they say bizarre a couple times in the show and every time they do I'm like a little bit triggered I'm like whoa they kind of said almost the title but not really yeah <laughs> Zapelli does mention, well, I guess in his inner monologue, that he'll never tell anyone about his secret, about being fated for death. I think this is smart. I think the the reason he's keeping this inside is because that will change Jonathan's focus on reaching Dio and destroying the mask because he'll constantly be looking over his shoulder, making sure that Zapelli's okay. Um, I think it would just be too much of a, a distraction for Jonathan and for Speedwagon. Um, and who knows? Like he, Zapelli doesn't know when this is going to happen or how it's going to happen. So I think all around it was a smart decision, even if it is a really sad one that he can't confide in at the moment his closest friends, I guess, hopefully they're friends, uh, mm-hmm. that he has this this fate. It's kind of like uh, that Doctor Strange moment in Endgame. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, although you most of you probably should have seen Endgame by now. If you haven't seen Endgame, go watch Endgame. <laughs> but yeah, it's again, it's more of protecting his friends instead of, you know, having them worry about, oh, when is Zeppeli going to die? And the group reaches the training ground that's embedded at the bottom of a cliff by a river. I don't even know what it is. It's yeah, embedded in a cliff, and the name is Lair of the Two-Headed Dragon. I don't know where that's a reference to, but... Yeah, I'm not sure either. It just seems like very out of... I, I get they're kind of putting a little bit of context around what this this place is, but I feel like it's not really addressed. Um, but they, they land there and they go through this whole, you know, scene of um, of Tarkus trying to reach them and them trying to get inside of this this place. And really what I want to call out here is that after Tarkus traps Jonathan in this room, Zapelli is punching the door, trying to get in, and he says that... Hamon cannot destruct all material or all types of material. And he's like, this door is metal. I, I can't, you know, use Hamon to break it down. If only it were brick. And I'm just thinking to myself, the entire like facility <laughs> yeah. is made of brick. The one door is metal, but if you look like three inches to the left or the right, there's your brick. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't you just knock through the brick? I don't not I, I don't understand. And every time I watch this episode, I'm like, dude, there's brick all around you. Just use Hamon, dude. <laughs> Yeah, but you know that wouldn't that would make for a dramatic episode, I guess. 
I, I mean, to be fair, like not everything in, in this episode is nonsensical because right after that, I think we get Jonathan trying to use Hamon through the chain on his neck to then reach Tarkus, like up through the ceiling. But then as he does that, the Hamon hits the ceiling, dissipates. And he says that he explains that, like, I cannot use this metal in the way that I used the metal from um, Bruford's sword to hit. Tarkus with you know a direct shot of Hamon because when it hits the ceiling it dissipates but outside like there's Zapelli freaking out punching the door the metal door till his knuckles split and he's like I don't I can't break through it it's not brick and I'm like dude there's brick everywhere what are you talking about like d- just just use your eyes it's been a long night for all of them <laughs> they don't have time to <laughs> think about logical ways out of these situations it's it's honestly like one of my favorite and least favorite moments at the same time in this episode <laughs> i just had i had to call that out because i'm like i i don't get it dude <laughs> mm-hmm. but going back to poco as i said earlier he's very hot and cold in this episode while he was hot when it came to teasing tarkus and, and getting all up in his face in this moment he's very cold because this little bitch pisses his pants and then he goes and blames Zapelli, Speedwagon, and Jonathan for everything that's happening to his town, saying, you know, I need to get away from these guys. They wreaked havoc on my town, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, were you not paying attention, Poco? They literally saved you a thousand times and mm-hmm. stopped the bad guys. I'm like, this little kid, man, he's like, he's 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 up here and then he's down here and at another moment. I just found it funny, though, that, that he pissed his pants. But as this the scene progresses, we kind of get this mini character arc for Poco probably within a span of like five to eight minutes where, you know, after peeing his pants and being a little bitch, he then sees Speedwagon trying his best to break down this metal door that apparently is indestructible. And Speedwagon says, you know, I'm always the onlooker. I'm powerless. I'm, I'm unable to help. And that triggers something in Poco. Poco then has that flashback where he gets beat up. He's, he's again being a little bitch and his sister comes over and bitch slaps him because he's a little bitch and tells him to grow up and that reminds him that he does need to man up and become useful and open this door for Zapelli and Speedwagon so they can save Jonathan. Um, and he does that, which is great. We see his mini character arc kind of come to a completion when he crawls through that hole and um, goes and opens the door, but not before yelling out loud to his sister who wasn't even there, Yeah, like, tomorrow is now. Because I guess in the flashback, she said, like, or he, she kept asking him, when are you going to man up? And he said, I'm, I'll, I'll beat them up tomorrow. And she's like, when is tomorrow? So in this moment, he says out loud, tomorrow is now. And Tarkus probably would not have even seen him or heard him come into the room. But because he yelled out loud for some reason, Tarkus sees him and clocks him in the fucking face. <laughs> Yeah, you could just, you know, to kind of take this from, like, the Japanese government, you could scream inside your heart, Poco. (laughs) Like, you wouldn't have gotten clocked if you just shut up and say it in your head. Yeah, but it's okay. Hopefully he learned his lesson, and he managed to open the door, and Speedwagon and Zapelli rush in. But to kind of comment on Poco a little bit more, again, this is where, I guess, the themes of fate and honor are kind of tied together that we see in this episode is Poco in a way alters his own fate and embodies this new sense of honor again in response to um, Speedwagon feeling helpless in this situation, but his resolve to also save Jonathan. Um, because yeah, the easy way for Poco to get out of this situation is to just dip, but he knows that by doing so he's going to help these 
he calls them monsters win and then take over their town. Um, so he sees the bigger picture and, you know, again, he doesn't accept his fate of being, being a little bitch. And, you know, I think that's thanks to like him seeing Jonathan act so nobly throughout this, this whole ordeal um, between him and these vampires and these knights and with Dio's whole army um, that it, it, that it flips that switch in him to learn not to, to fear pain or to fear fighting back, which I think is also a parallel to Bruford's previous comments about how feeling pain is part of being human. So whereas you see, like, again, before this, I just thought Poco was a throwaway character, but now I realize like, Oh, he's the, he's the way to help Jonathan get saved by Zeppeli in the end. Yeah. He does play an important role, surprisingly. Um, but it's, again, another example of Jonathan just bringing out the best in all of these characters as a result of his own honor. And, again, with him altering what could have been a very dire fate for Poco. So, again, that Speedwagon, that's been saved. Bruford, that's been saved. Poco, that's been saved. Who knows? We'll see if Tarkis ends up being saved or if he's just offed um, or if we see that with any other remaining characters in this part. I will say, though, with Poco, one thing that... that irks me a little bit is that he seems ungrateful for what Zapelli, Speedwagon, and Jonathan have done for him up until this point. Because again, earlier he says, I got to get away from these guys. They're the ones who wreaked havoc on our town, which is not true. Unless he was talking about Tarkus in that moment, but it felt like he was talking about the trio. Um, And then when he finally does come around and, and want to play his part in saving Jonathan, it's not, there's no mention of, you know, I need to return the favor to these guys or these Mm. are good people i need to help them it's just if i don't do this these monsters are going to come attack our town and they're going to hurt my sister which there's nothing wrong with that part of it but i would have liked to have had him acknowledge to at least some degree that um that he also owes a debt to these three in this moment and that these three are good people who are doing the right thing it was established earlier that like poco was just a pickpocket right yeah, I think so. Unless that was just part of him being influenced by Dio, that Jonathan and the group just saw that. Um, so I think it, it's just, if we were to assume that he was a pickpocket by nature, that you know it's not easy for him to kind of grasp these feelings of like gratefulness. Although that's kind of contradicted with his sister telling him not to be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. But the moral of the story here is don't be like Poco and be grateful for people who save you from Vampire Nights. When Speedwagon rushes in to the arena, is that what it is? I guess we'll call it an arena. Or the lair. The lair. Um, he rushes in to, to help Poco after he gets clocked in the face. I love this very, very tiny moment. I just like, it's so funny to me. I, I, I kind of brush over it like the first couple of times I watched this, but watching this episode again, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> he basically rushes to Poco's side and says to Jonathan, don't worry, it's just a bruise in reference to you know Poco getting hit in the face. But meanwhile, Poco was laying in Speedwagon's arms with his head cracked open with blood dripping down his face. I'm like, uh, Speedwagon, that's a little more than a bruise. <laughs> I don't know if he's just telling Jonathan that so that Jonathan wouldn't be too focused on Poco and would just pay attention to Tarkus. But I'm like, that doesn't look like a bruise to me. <laughs> or it's kind of like when you're, you tell your mom, like, oh, I'm, I have a fever and you can't go to school. And then your mom just puts her, her hand on your forehead and says, oh, no, you're fine. Let's go. <laughs> Which what, this day and age is really bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Speedwagon was like. <laughs> it's okay. Poco's manned up. He can, he can deal with that cracked forehead of his. Yeah. 
I think the last thing that's important to mention with this episode is that you know shit's about to go down when Roundabout queues up so perfectly to Zeppeli's, I guess, title fight entrance. It was a really good scene. Like that that slow introduction of Roundabout, that guitar riff, pluck, I don't even know what you want to call it. The pluck. The luck and pluck (laughs) of the guitar in Roundabout. Um, and like, yeah, that, that cool angle, we get like the, the back shot of Zapelli like coming in with his badass walk and he's, he's realizing like, could this be what Tom Petty foresaw for my destiny? It was just so cool. Like it was just a really cool moment. And Zeppeli, as you've mentioned before, is a very aloof character. Like this just made him feel so cool. So badass. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, with the theme of fate, his last words in this episode are, if my fate is such, so be it. Again, he's not here to fuck around. <laughs> he is here to do business. And I can't wait to see how that business gets done in the next episode. So overall, let's wrap it up. What are your final thoughts on Tomorrow's Courage? I thought, um, again, this was a step in the right direction, taking us back up to the level of JoJo that we expect from JoJo episodes. Um, Still felt like a filler, but got us some good mini character development for Poco, um, character development for Bruford, even though he's gone now, and um, set us up for something really epic in the next episode. Um, So it was was an important episode, but not a... Um, significant episode is how I describe it. What about you? Yeah, yeah, this is just a step above uh, episode five. Really, I thought the pacing of Bruford's demise was odd. I felt like that could have kind of been grouped together with the conclusion of the previous episode. And then this one kind of focused more on Tarkus's aspect. But regardless, I think the episode showed important moments in like showcasing Jonathan's nobility even though towards those he considers as enemies and how that affects characters such like such as Poco um, later on. Um, one thing I'll also admit that I don't think I touched upon before is I like that the episode kind of mixes up the action by contrasting Bruford's battle with Jonathan in the beginning with this concept of the chain death match instead of you know making this another like same old, same old homogenous melee battle. But again, the thing that we are all hopefully looking forward to is how Zeppeli concludes this battle in the next episode. So we'll see how that goes. And that wraps up episode six of Strictly JoJo. New episodes premiere every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central. You can follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series. And check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you can reach out to us to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued. (laughs) 